Hello, we're going to be doing something a little bit different on this week's episode. Now, usually you'd expect to hear myself and George Breer chopping up the week in sports industry news, but there's no George this week. And instead, I'm joined by three members of the Sports Pro New Era cohort for 2023, the first ever class of the Sports Pro New Era program. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Sports Pro New Era is a career development initiative designed to recognize, support, and advocate for a for gender equality and representation within the international sports industry. And I'm lucky enough to be joined today by Ali Densmore, VP of Strategy and New Business Development at the Professional Fighters League, Charlie Sizer, the Global Partnerships Manager at DAZN, and Sahar Shah, Product and UX slash UI Designer at Areto Labs. And we're going to be looking ahead to the year in women's sport and also discussing some of the major topics around women in sport for 2023. Now, I'm Tom Basson, and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. It's my absolute pleasure to be joined today by three members of our Sports Pro New Era cohort for 2023. Dialing in from various corners of the world, we have um, Ali Dinsmore, Sahar Shah and Charlie. If we can, I would really, really love to start with each of your backstories, really, and your journeys into the industry so far. So, Ali, if we could start with you. Sure. Thank you. And thanks again for having us. I'm really excited to be here and to be part of the New Era program. But I'm Ali Dinsmore. I'm currently the VP of Strategic Partnerships and Business Development at the Professional Fighters League, which is an MMA organization, uh, a global MMA organization. And uh, my, my path into sports has mostly come by way of media and entertainment. I worked in production, talent, PR um, on the film and entertainment side, and then went to business school really to transition into the distribution side of the business. After that, I worked at Verizon doing content acquisitions for both the mobile and linear TV side, and then transitioned actually to their corporate strategy team, launching new businesses built on mobile edge computing. So really, my whole career has been built on external partnerships, trying to find a way to grow fandom, to grow entertaining experiences for people who are passionate about what they watch and what they consume from a media standpoint. So the opportunity to transition into the Professional Fighters League really fit very nicely um, with, with what I am passionate about and what I care about and having the opportunity to help grow this brand that is so focused on a growth sport and um, you know giving fighters a new opportunity and a path to really making a, a professional career in the sport was something I, I don't even think I realized I would love so much um, and, until I joined the company about a year and a half ago. Lovely stuff. Uh, and Sahaj? I would echo a lot of what Ali said, actually. So I also never imagined that working in sport would be something that I loved so dearly, but I do. And so I, hi everyone, I'm, I'm Sahaj and I'm a uh, currently a product designer at a company called Aretto Labs. We're based out of Canada, but we're fully remote and it's uh, essentially a women-founded tech company. So that's a mouthful, uh, using AI to combat online abuse, specifically in sport for athletes and for sports brands. 
I come from a bit of an unconventional background into sport. I you know, moved to London a few years ago to do my master's in international diplomacy with a focus on gender equality initiatives. And so that push towards gender equality is what kind of brought me into sport. I find that like international development, sport is a very mission-driven sector. And so because of having that in common and, and because of this big push for equality across gender, and uh, and race in so many other areas sport just really felt like a, a natural um, a fit and uh, I've just been really lucky because not a single day of work I can't like this is I know a bit uncommon to say but not a single day of work has ever felt like work uh, at Aretto which is um, I'm really grateful for so that's a little bit about me that is a nice feeling. I, I sort of wish I could say the same, but um, uh, we've got a nice uh, we've got a nice blend of um, backgrounds here, actually. Because Charlie, you're coming in from the media side, right? Yeah, that's correct. So my current role, working at Design, uh, is in our business development team, and I work as a global partnerships manager. So my role there is all about making sure you know Design is distributed globally across our partner platforms and then activating those partnerships in some of our key markets across the world. But I'm originally from Hull in East Yorkshire. Um, My journey into where I am today is quite traditional one, I suppose, from the perspective of education. I always had a love for learning, went to the University of Leeds and graduated with an undergrad degree in management with marketing Started my career in telcos in the UK, so I worked at Sky. Started after university on my graduate scheme at BT and then made my way into the commercial side of sport, working at BT Sport and then now at Discern. All right, great stuff. So all of you here today as members of the New Era cohort, something completely new for us, but also I'm guessing new for you too. How's that New Era experience been for you guys so far? Maybe maybe if we start with Ali again. It has been so phenomenal it really has been amazing to be a part of this program i can't speak highly enough about it the support that we've been given by the steering group who are such such inspirational women so highly accomplished the fact that they have been so generous with their time in speaking with us and giving me advice from a career perspective from a personal perspective that has already been so so meaningful in the few short months since this program launched and i can certainly also say that being able to meet and connect with the other cohort members sahaj and charlie and others i have already leaned on for guidance and advice i'm working on a a project now (laughs) with someone that that i met and was connected with it's it is so meaningful just to have these doors opened and have these connections facilitated, especially for someone who has only really been in the industry for a relatively brief time. It has been invaluable from my perspective. Yeah, Charlie, so harsh. I mean, how, how have you found it? Is there anyone that in particular from the steering group that you, you've leaned you've been towards or tapped for advice that has really kind of helped you? I think all of my conversations so far with every single member of the steering group, I've had three so far, they've all been so wonderful, uh, so generous with their time. But also, I think there are some in particular that 
I have very similar backgrounds too. I spoke with Vicki Gosling last week and, you know, she comes from a background in the armed forces as well, working more in that development space and learning about her transition into sport from such a vastly different space and being able to ask her for advice. Um, it feels surreal. I never imagined that I'd be able to find other people with such unconventional backgrounds in sport that I could lean on for advice. And again, they've been so generous with their time. I couldn't be more grateful. And Charlie, I mean, I think that sort of point that Sahaj makes there about finding people in the right places is really pertinent. And sport has a, I think it's fair to say it has a problem with the fact that it's it's got such a poor balance in terms of gender equality. So like, for you, is it, has it been that thing of just being able to talk with a group of women about the, some of the issues that you you found or tackled or had to tackle in your job? Yeah, absolutely. I'd absolutely agree with what Ali and Sahaj said around the invaluable experience that's been part of the program has given us so far and the connections made you know one of the key things for me is it is a really safe community to be in as well so you can discuss lots of different things that you wouldn't have necessarily had you know the space or the place to talk about previously it's also an environment you're able to build a lot of confidence so from that point of view it's brilliant I'm sure my uh, my bosses would be absolutely delighted if we just sat here for a half full hour and uh, talked about how great the new era program is. But um, I'd actually really really like to get some of your thoughts on um, what the kind of what the future holds in 2023 for not just for for women's sport, but we can focus on that too. But for for women in sport as well. So I don't know if there's anything in particular that any of you would like to pick out that you're really looking forward to for, from the year in women's sport but yeah feel free whoever wants to raise their hand first just uh, just chuck up a hand I've definitely got a few kind of key things that I think are coming up in 2023 for women's sport this year I think I'm a big football fan that was my passion that's my main love in sport so the Lionesses winning the Euros last year was the top moment so I'm hoping that as we go into the summer this year they're going to do the same again um, and we're going to have victory at the World Cup. So that's one of the biggest um, moments for me this year. And it'd be criminal if I didn't say that we've got the Women's Champions League final on discern in May as well. It definitely would be criminal, Charlie. Yeah, your bosses would maybe be <laughs> as angry with you as they are with me if I don't talk about the Nero programme. So yeah, but that's going to be a huge moment. It's our second season with the Women's Champions League. We are the global home of, of that property. All 61 matches go out on YouTube every well, this season, every game on YouTube. And last year, we saw some incredible results. You know, the final last year, we had live viewership of 4.1 million, which is unheard of. So, you know, I'm very excited to see what we can do this year as well. I have to admit, I really enjoyed watching the the Women's Champions League and, and the Women's Euros over the summer. I think both of those kind of properties together um, and, and the WSL, um, with my sort of uh, English how on of really, like, helped me have really helped like prove the value of women's sport not that that should need to be proved but broadly speaking it kind of has been the case I think I think you're right picking out those two things they're going to be massive massive moments uh Sahaj is there anything outside of those that you'd like to highlight I saw the uh, documentary Where the Rose uh, that England Rugby had come out with in partnership with I think O2 and that in combination with the fact that my team at Aretto we we're working with Sport New Zealand at the time to monitor the Women's Rugby World Cup. And I think there's just been, you know, the 
there's been a snowball effect from the women's Euros from this summer and how that broke so many records in terms of attendance and viewership and and really seeing that start to snowball into the Women's Rugby World Cup. And I mean, all of the prediction stats out there are saying that that's gonna to continue to happen, you know, with the with the Women's Six Nations uh, coming up just around the corner in, in March. Uh, that, um, I think we're gonna to start to see, especially with the TikTok partnership, you know, uh, in combination with long form content like that documentary, Where the Rose, that really tries to connect athletes with the fans and tell stories on such a personal and deep level, where I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that roll out with TikTok as well in terms of short form that's very similar to that kind of uh, storytelling that we saw in Where the Rose. And uh, yeah, I think women's rugby Six Nations is going to be massive off the back of the Women's Euros and the Rugby World Cup. I, I'm so excited to see where that goes. I remember Jenny Mitten, who's also part of the steering group, she was telling me, and she also spoke in the Sports Pro uh, event in Madrid, about how the tickets have already started selling out way in advance. There is a match, I think, between France and England and the Red Roses in April. And back in the end of November, they were at just over 30,000 tickets sold, which is massive. It's the, the Red Roses' first ever standalone match at, at Twickenham Stadium. I think that those kinds of records are going to constantly, constantly be broken in 2023, and I cannot wait. Harking back to what Charlie said about the Women's World Cup as well today, uh, we, we just published a story on Sports Pro speaking on Tuesday um, about how the ticket sales for the Women's World Cup in Australia have already passed half a million with like six months to go on on the build into that. And chances are that's probably going to surpass the ticket sales for the last tournament in France, which I think was like 1.1 million. So yeah, I, I think that's going to be a continuing narrative, isn't it? Like especially as more and more fans return to venues and are seeking kind of different experiences from sport. Uh, women's sport has has that offer. It's one of the kind of things that I really like when I go to like a, a WSL game. Yeah, it's, it's a very kind of different, much like safer feeling uh, environment for me, I think, than going to even a Premier League game. Um, now, Ali, you can you can talk about the, the PFL if you want to, but uh, there's anything else that you'd like to anything else you'd like to pick out on that on tentpole moments for women's sport this year? Sure. Well, obviously excited about the Women's World Cup. It's an opportunity for the U.S. Women's National Team going for a three-peat, which would be historic. So, so excited about that. But it's also, it's the 50th anniversary of the WTA in tennis. And I think women's tennis has been kind of a beacon of equity in the sports world for longer than, you know, really a lot of other sports, largely because of the WTA and the work that Jean King and, and others did to raise the visibility of women in that sport. So I think this is, you know, it's not one particular moment, but I think it's an exciting year for women's tennis. I think the young women's players are so exciting. Um, so I'm excited to see what, what will happen there with the Australian Open happening now. But on the side of the PFL, we are, we're launching a, a super fight division, which will be standalone pay-per-view matches and Kayla Harrison has signed on to, to be part of that. And the PFL is very committed to featuring women as, you know, main events, co-main events for, you know, our, our events moving forward. So I'm really excited to see, you know, Kayla Harrison headlining an event like that. And I think if you look at 2022, it was a big year for women's combat sports. 
especially in the UK, you had the Savannah Marshall and Clarissa Shields event selling out O2 Arena, you know, having 2 million live viewers in the UK alone. That is, those are meaningful numbers. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it, it helps to be able to point to data like that as we move forward and, and to kind of showcase that there is so much appetite for women in sport, you know, on the viewership side, on the rights holder side, we should all kind of be thinking about, about this differently and be more excited about it and probably less surprised when these things are, are successful. We could just go back to the, the tennis stuff. I don't know if any of you guys have managed to binge all the way through uh, uh, breaking point yet, but I feel like that's going to be a really big conversation starter in women's tennis and kind of open up yeah, open up the profiles a bit of some of those players who have been in Serena's shadow and um, sort of the other big names that have dominated the, the women's game for a while. Uh, uh, you've got the likes of, yeah, Ange Jabour, who's a, who's a big feature in that show. Um, obviously, you've got the Australian Open going on now. But it's a kind of interesting time, I think, for for the WTA, the sort of what happened in China with, with Peng Shui and the fact that they had to reform that calendar, how they move on from that and how they how they grow is going to be is going to be really interesting and just to add on to that i think you make a really good point around that breaking point series on netflix formula one's drive to survive has set this kind of motion going of how powerful these behind the scenes content series really can be and i, there, I don't think there is anything quite out there yet that for the women's game or for women's sport in general breaking point is probably one of the first so i definitely would like to think and hope that that is a theme um, that we start to see more of now especially for for women's sport and women in sport yeah i mean i think it goes back into um the i suppose what you were saying about the the women's rugby documentary right it's really important i think to get to know um athletes especially female athletes who struggle sometimes to get the recognition they're the things that need to be explored i mean charlie at the zone is there have you got original content plans around the women's champions league stuff that, you, that that goes out there at all is that something that's being explored yeah definitely being explored and um, nothing that i do so i've got no idea currently what the plans are but for kind of the future i'll have to check with somebody about that one but i know last season we created all sorts of different content series with um one of our main sponsors adidas we put out an incredible kind of short film kind of mini series about Chelsea Women Football Club. So there's tons of things out there that are being created and designed are definitely kind of looking into that space more as well and leaning into it. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I have to tell you about Sports Pose Ignition 2023 virtual event where Sports Deck comes to life. Join us online on the 8th of February and discover the most cutting-edge innovations in sports tech via a virtual hub of keynote speaker sessions, demo sprints, and tech providers. In addition to expert insight from the likes of the PGA Tour, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Overtime, and Liquidity Team, you will discover the most disruptive new startups to invest in right now. Register for free today at ignition.sport to network, learn, and engage with your next sports partner. Now back to the podcast. One um, sort of major media story, actually, that's already kind of come out this year. The women's IPL, really, it's rights deal in, well, it's actually a global rights deal with Viacom 18. That was uh, announced yesterday. And I think it's the, the absolutely massive, that deal. So, like, I, I was I was doing a bit of background research into, um, yeah, the sort of size of women's rights deals globally. And I now think that one's the third biggest ever done in terms of annual like size and fee. 
is i mean I, 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 like it goes kind of goes without saying doesn't it really that that's going to be really important when it comes to the next stage for for women's sports this year is is making sure that those rights fees and that the value that value is properly placed on the broadcast contracts for women's sport I was just reading some research uh, that came out recently. There's a member of the Women's Sport Collective. She was doing her PhD around uh, women's sport sponsorship. And in the report, one of the biggest points was that the reason we're starting to see bigger and bigger sponsors with a lot of money investing in women's sport is because there are so many more tools available that measure the valuations of sponsorships. So all of a sudden, you know, women's sports clubs and rights holders are not having to knock on the door so hard to get those sponsorships. You know, they have the tools in place to do all of that legwork for them and say, hey, actually, you know, the numbers do add up, you know, across the board for women's sport around the world. It, it, it will make a lot of money. The business case is right here in the numbers. And, and that, I think, closes the gap uh, a lot more. Um, and, and we're only going to, with the boom of, of tech as well, that's able to do that. We're going to see so much more of that start to happen this year. Ali, Charlie, is that does that kind of bear out in in your roles, the content that you work with, and the, the properties that you work with? I read that report too, and I think it gives me a lot of hope. I do think that broadcasters are in disagreement <laughs> a, a bit with that, and it's a bit frustrating from the rights holder side. Um, you know, at the PFL, we don't separate our women's divisions from our men's, they all happen in the same event. So we don't don't necessarily see this on a day-to-day basis. But I think you can look at the the Women's World Cup rights, which are being sold um, as a separate package for, for broadcast. And I think, you know, last fall, the, it, it was announced by FIFA that the bids they had received were unacceptable. You know, that they so undervalued the rights that they wouldn't even consider a, a large number of them. And I think that is just, it's so disappointing um, that even something so globally recognized has to fight. (laughs) And from a a business perspective, because I previously was in a content acquisition role, I understand you've, you know, as sports rights increase in cost, everyone is also trying to to save a buck on, (laughs) on the broadcast side. And we have to be able to find a happy medium where these these properties are being valued in a real way that, that makes sense um, for the viewership that they're going to bring in, whether that's from an advertising perspective or from a you know, driving subscription perspective. And I, I think it goes back to what Charlie said too, and what we've all been saying around storytelling, and that I think women's properties are almost obligated to offer a, a broader package of content besides just the live events. There has to be storytelling that can, you know, shoulder programming, ancillary content that can help bolster these rights in a different way than a lot of the, the men's properties are, are kind of required to provide from a broadcaster perspective. Yeah, I can add to that. I, I agree. And uh, it is a frustrating, you know, part of women's sport. But I think in general, across all types of organisations and, and across the industry, it's getting better. And I think more and more people are recognising the value and the potential for women's sport to really grow and really start to bring in kind of commercial gains. It is tricky. I think what happens, you know, we're not there yet in, let's take women's football, for example. If you look at Angel City, now they are one to watch as well for 2023. They've been what? professional for one year in the NWSL 
and you know they're not yet making a profit of course they're not they're a brand new business but they've got they've announced a really clear path to profitability within the next 18 months i think they've brought in around 40 million dollars worth of sponsorship within that one year of being fully professional like it they, these are insane numbers and if there's any kind of club that is exemplary in showing the potential of what women's sport can do for me it's it's them at the minute i think they're doing some incredible work but what it also shows you is that you need to be able to accept um, a short-term loss in these investments in order to make a long-term gain and for me that's one of the most important things and I think is kind of a mindset shift in what needs to happen in some of the traditional ways of dealing with sport but and then obviously finally from a personal perspective of being in an organization like Discern where you know we have a big you know mission to to continually increase the visibility of the women's properties that we've got you know we're the ultimate destination for women's football we continue to bring on more properties around women's football we've got WSL Bundesliga Liga Air for you know the whole array of women's football properties and we've just launched a standalone subscription for women's football in Spain so these things are starting to happen and you know companies are investing yeah hopefully we'll um we'll continue to see the growth over the next couple of years and where we all would like it to be I'd actually love to ask you a little bit more about the the, the, the women's subscription in Spain, Charlie. Like that was a, a yeah really interesting announcement that came out. I, I guess that kind of goes to your point, doesn't it, of it being the responsibility of media companies to to showcase those those properties that they've got. Do you think that that kind of thing is important in doing that? Do you think it's the only way of doing it, or do you think that there are other ways too of of like highlighting the fact that you've got these kind of offerings for for consumers and that they need to be put like packaged in a special way or is there other ways of doing it too i think there's definitely other ways of doing it um absolutely if i'm honest if you'd have asked me like two or three years ago if i thought building a standalone women's sport subscription package or a women's sport only channel i probably would have given you a different answer to the one that I would give you today because of how much how far we've come and how far women's sport have come because previously you know broadcasters may, might have bought women's sports rights and then those women's sport rights don't then get the extra support that's needed around a marketing budget etc that is needed to really elevate them and then they end up just getting buried kind of behind a paywall and you have to really you know look around to try and find them and that just doesn't help anybody whereas now you know there in general there is so much more marketing there's so much more media coverage there's so much more journalism there's so much more everything in the ecosystem which then gives you a really good valuable proposition to package together and put to a, a, a massively growing fan base so yeah my answer has definitely changed over time but it's it's not the only thing that you can do. And I also really believe that you cannot just build these packages and expect them to, you know, just deliver on their own. You still need kind of all of the the support around them to make them really successful. But, you know, it's the first time we've at Design we've ever done anything like this. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how it performs and what else comes of it. I'd also love to go back and perhaps sort of change the framing of the conversation slightly and, and go back to Angel City, right? Obviously run by Julie Ehrman, as you said, done an un- absolutely unbelievable job with the sort of the business side of it. 
sort of flipping the script over to like away from women's sport in particular and women in sport how important is it to have figures like that who sort of basically kind of refuse to devalue their properties and refuse to sort of accept less because they know exactly what it is that they've got and they know that there's a market for it is that something do you think we're going to have this like we're going to see more and more of you think she's going to become an inspirational figure if she's not already for for others across the across the industry i mean i think absolutely to me she is really inspiring and as someone who is not athletic but loves sports <laughs> and I'm so excited to be able to work in this industry. It's really important to have role models that you can look to who are so successful on the business side of the sport and who are in you know by virtue of being successful commercially proving out the value of women's sports overall um, and and that it doesn't take a man to communicate that message, which I think is part of the other challenge um, that sometimes is being faced. And when you have men that are leading sponsorship sales that are, you know, packaging men's and women's rights together and, you know, maybe just because that's always how it's been done, you miss out on, on some opportunities. And I, I do feel like what she's done at Angel City is sort of take a whole new approach. She's got a new model. You know, sponsors are expected to participate in community activism. And rather than that being a turnoff, what you've seen is that it has brought forward sponsors who want to work with them in a different way, in a more meaningful way that will wind up being more valuable for everyone. So I think she is doing something that is really, really exciting that tons of women and men should look at um, in terms of just a, a new model and a new approach. Yeah, I, I think I think you're bang on. Uh, Sahaj, is there anyone else that you sort of look up to? It doesn't have to be working directly in sport. It can be sort of adjacent too. Is there anyone else that you sort of pick out as uh, big figures, people to look out for in 2023? Yes, I do think... Well, I, I would actually name a club within sport. Angel City is one of them in North America. And I think in the UK, for me, that would be Maggie Murphy, who's the CEO of uh, Lewis Football Club. They Everything she's doing is also quite disruptive in the sense that, you know, they release their, their business strategy publicly. You know, that that's that's just one of many. They're... they're their approach to social impact and gender equality, I think, is it's really inspiring and it really sets the tone for, for other clubs to hopefully follow. Um, I know that things take time, but I think that it's really important for, for sport to take a few cues from, I think, the startup world in the way that I think Julie Ehrman from Angel City has really done. Maggie Murphy is also doing at Lewis. They're they're not afraid to speak up and, and be disruptive in ways that I think the tech world has really done well in. And so, yeah, I think those are those are two people that I really look up to for those reasons. To be honest, Julie Ehrman is probably right at the top of my list at the minute. And we've spoke about her a lot already. But, you know, exactly what Ali just said, which is she's just not afraid to do things in a different way. And she's building a completely new business model around a women's football club that is working. And I just think it's having um, the belief in that plan, building the team around you to be able to execute on that plan and execute on that strategy and just go for it. I just think that is just really commendable. So she's definitely up there. And I've always loved Emma Hayes as well, who is obviously the Chelsea women's manager. She spoke at a conference that I went to last year 
and yeah she's just so relatable and yeah massive massive fan of hers as well yeah, she was a major miss for me on the uh, ITV World Cup coverage this year. Yeah. I thought she was absolutely brilliant during the Euros. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. To kind of spin that around a little bit, how important is it for like for women's sport to, to go its own way? Like, I, Do you think that, I've always kind of thought this, like women's sport has a kind of opportunity, especially as it's in its strong growth phase, to define how you run that business. And like, I felt previously it's kind of like... The idea has been, oh, yeah, you just do what they do on the men's side and actually that'll work. But I, I feel like julie Herman, as you said uh sorry her name's completely gone from my head but the ceo at lewis they do their they do they go about things in a completely different way and that's what works is that do you feel like that's kind of should be an adopted like universal approach um or do you think it's kind of uh, there are things that you there are some things you can carry over and some things that you'd leave behind in the world of men's sport oh there's definitely a lot that i'd leave behind in men's sport the one thing that i love is the is almost like the culture and the environment that you are in when you go to a women's football game or a women's sport game versus when you go to a you know a traditional men's football game it is such a different atmosphere but it is so much more inclusive and family orientated and friendly and you see crossovers in different fans home and away fans that you would never get at those games and I think we've spoke about this before but I, that brings so much more commercial opportunity as well to the game there are different types of brands that would want to be associated with that and don't want to be associated with the toxic nature or the hooliganism or the bad habits and behaviors that you get in in those games so that is a massive thing for me I feel like when I when I went to watch the Lionesses and Sheffield won their World Cup game there last year I felt like I belonged there and I felt like I was meant to be there and I felt comfortable and I've been to football games my whole life you know my dad started taking me when I was younger I felt protected there obviously because I was with my dad which just says enough in itself but you just yeah you just have this different level of of belonging and which is just incredible and some people criticize that but actually I think it's a massive massive benefit no, I, I completely agree. Uh, if we go back to the sort of differences of like, embracing the differences of women's sport, I, I, I think that's a, yeah, I, I think that for me would be a, a real positive. Is there anything else, Ali Saharish, that you think like women's sport should leave behind in men's sport in terms of its commercialization? Well, one thing that I, I will say for men's sport is that they are able to build stars. It is collectively, I think it is the media around men's sport. It is the clubs and organizations that just put everything behind their kind of golden boys. And that is something that I feel like has not quite been replicated exactly on the women's side. I think what you see is more women making themselves stars, you know, whether it's on social media, making themselves more transparent. I think it's been a different model for kind of female athletes to find their success. But I, I feel like, some women's clubs, and I include the PFL on this, can can do a better job of, of pushing their star athletes forward and, and out there. But I think one thing that enables, you know, Lewis Football Club and, and Angel City to do things differently is notably an investor group who supports them in doing that. And that is such a requirement for any sports property to to be able to take things in a different direction 
And it's very hard to do that. You know, it is hard to find investors that that want to deviate from a model that has worked for so, so many leagues and clubs historically, you know, with small deviations, but largely it's it's the same path. You know, it's revenue, it's broadcast, and there you go. <laughs> Sponsorships and broadcast. And to, to turn that on its head, you've got to have buy-in from the stakeholders. And as Charlie, I think, really eloquently said, you need someone who will understand that maybe you're not going to get the ROI as instantly as you might want by taking this different path, but the long-term results will prove out. And the data is continuously showing that. So I do think that even from an investor community standpoint, whether it's traditional sports investors or non-traditional, you know, you look at Angel City, it's a lot of individual, you know, powerhouse women in Hollywood <laughs> that, that are invested there. And, and I do think that that gives female leaders the ability to take chances that, um, you know, in other instances they wouldn't get. I just wanted to add to that, that investors need to be willing to go beyond just wanting to make a quick buck. I was talking to someone from a a freestyle football organization the other day who was saying that a lot of their female athletes get asked by sponsors to, you know, at least once a quarter to post um, things on social, uh, doing sport in heels, uh, because they know that that's going to get, you know, a lot more clicks, that's going to get a lot more attention in the short run, and they'll make money off of it. And I think for rights holders, but also sponsors and investors uh, to be able to focus more on the long game on putting out more meaningful content that really allows people to connect on a personal level with the individual athletes, you know, beyond just doing posts and heels playing sport. That's that's not relevant. You know, that that's not what's going to make people follow follow an athlete throughout their career. Um, so yeah, just to echo what what Ali just said, I, I think focusing on the long game on meaningful storytelling is is really the way to go for investors and sponsors as well. I think that kind of segues us quite nicely into the the next part of this conversation. That I'd like to have actually. I really really hope we're past the days of just pinky and trinky when it comes to to women's sport marketing. But um, yeah, if you guys could kind of each give me a, like a an equality goal for the industry in twenty twenty three. That can be like as big or as small as you want it to be. So, uh, Sahaj, I mean, uh, maybe you've you've just burned yours out, but let's see if you've got another one up your sleeve. Uh, sure, I think mine, off the back of what I just said about sponsors and the content that they put out uh, with or on behalf of athletes, I think for women's sport or just sport across the board, no matter what race or gender someone is from, for rights holders and sponsors and investors to work together to have some sort of safeguarding measures in place. You know, we're starting to see a lot of safeguarding measures uh, in stadiums already uh, in terms of, you know, rights holders saying no to bullying in the stands and things like that uh, among the fans, among the athletes. But even just having one thing in place um, for safeguarding online, it does. I think a lot of what happens is people start to get overwhelmed because the online world is this big beast and, and it becomes overwhelming in terms of, okay, where do I start? But if 
a team sits down and just comes with one minimal step together and says, okay, uh, you know, this month or this quarter, this is one thing we're going to do to protect our athletes online on social media. I think that's as good a place to start as any. My equality goal in the industry would actually start at school level. So if I could change anything, and I do think progress has been made in this space, by the way, um, more so than when I was at school, But the thing that I would change would be to make sure that kids have a greater variety of option of the sport that they can play. So, for example, you know, when I was at school, I was told that girls couldn't play football. We had to do netball and rounders. And as much as I love netball and rounders, I should have also had the opportunity to play football, which I love, and play rugby and so on. And And I also believe the same should happen in the opposite direction. Um, for boys as well being able to do whatever sport that they wanted because I think at that level you know let's stop telling children at the age when they're forming all of their basic views of the world that girls play certain types of sports and boys play other types of sports because I think if we do that then you start to change the way people think and the way people view sport from an early age which will then just in my view just change the future of of how we view it all together. Ali, if I could pose the same question to you. Yeah, well, I think it it builds perfectly on what you were just talking about, actually. My goal and my ask, I guess, really, of stakeholders in the industry is just to read the data. You know, it, it's there. <laughs> if you look at the past few years and the growth of women's sport, there is more here to investing in this space than it's the right thing to do, which it is absolutely to, to grow the visibility of, of our female athletes whose performance has been absolutely equal to our, our males. If everyone would just take the time to try to you know counteract their assumptions about women's sport and just take a look at how tickets are selling and what viewership looks like and the growth of women's viewership versus men's in the same sports, they would see the narrative and and it would build on itself. So, you know, it's harder than you think to get people to change the way that that they approach these things um, and to change their assumptions. But that's my small but hopefully achievable goal is just that everybody who has a, a leadership role in the sports industry could take take a moment to read a report, not just a headline, and really dig into the value of these properties. And for any sort of uh, sports execs or marketing teams listening, we'll more than happily publish that data. So if you send it to us, we'll stick it up and uh, everyone will get to read it. Okay, so to come back kind of like full circle to where we were at the start of the conversation, uh, talking about your own personal journeys and the New Era program, if perhaps we could go back around and do some, I guess we're just about all right to still be talking about New Year's resolutions on the 17th of January. Uh, let's do some New Year's resolutions uh, for, for yourself in, for in in your roles, but also sort of, yeah, taking it a little bit broader if you want to too. So we'll start with Ali, if that's okay. Sure. So I have a, a pretty broad remit at, at the PFL. So my goal is always just to prioritize what's most important, you know, for, for the league, for our fans, for our fighters. It is just to, you know, across all of the opportunities that we have um, in terms of you know, getting our IP out there, what's really going to move the needle for for our fans and, and our fighters. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. We get lost sometimes among all of the different things we're trying to do, but just to kind of come back to that and, and be able to really 
prioritize among the many, many things we're trying to get done? I know you asked for one, but am I allowed to say three? Because I've got three main goals that I wrote down for myself this year. The first one was to ask more questions. I think it's something that we're told like all the way through your career and when you first start out and then you just kind of slowly stop asking questions because you feel like you always should have the right answers. So that's my first one is ask more questions and if in doubt, ask, never assume. The second one is this year, I really want to start to invest in myself more. Again, when you kind of have your busy day, nine to five, Monday to Friday, you just never put that time aside to invest in yourself. So that is one of my goals this year, take time out for my development. And the third is to read more. Um, I love reading. I love getting kind of really engrossed and trapped into a really good book. But I also want to start reading more kind of I was going to say business books, but that sounds a bit boring, but you know what I'm getting at. So the next one on my list is The Ride of a Lifetime, which is was by the old Disney CEO. So that's next on my list. And if anyone has any other recommendations, please send them my way because I need to read more this year. I think uh, I think Shoe Dog uh, has been a Secret Santa gift in the Sports Pro office for uh, like five years in a row. Someone always ends up getting that for someone else in that. But um, yeah, similarly, I, I, if anyone wants to actually send in some uh, send in some reading recommendations, uh, podcast at sportspromedia.com. And uh, Charlie, I'll forward them over to you. Um, so Harj, what about yourself? Uh, personal New Year's work resolutions. Yes, I, I have a couple. One is to make an effort and really carve out that time to to join more networking, you know, events and calls, um, at least, you know, one a month. I think that's really important. And that's one thing that New Era has kind of taught me. And another thing is I also want to, I love reading. I read a lot of fiction when I have the time, but I think like Charlie, I'd love to be able to carve out intentional time, you know, once a week, a couple times a week, every day. But that's, uh, I feel like that's a bit too ambitious to start out with. Um, to, to do more reading uh, related to to work and to design and, and what I do. And I think one, one book within sport in the DEI space that I actually am going to pre-order today, it's by Susie Levy. It's, I think it's coming out May, May 11th, 2023. It's called Mind the Inclusion Gap. And uh, she was telling me all about it a couple months ago because uh, she was in the midst of writing it. And it sounds fantastic. So that's that's a book recommendation. It's called Mind the Inclusion Gap. Um, that's that's me. It sounds like we need to do, uh, start a sportswear podcast book club. Do. And maybe we'll get you guys back on in uh, like six months' time and we can talk about what we've read. Um, I think that's pretty much it for, for today's pod. Thank you all so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you. It was so wonderful. It was a lovely way to start the day. Thank you. Yeah, loved it. Thank you. No problems. All right, guys. Well, yeah, I'll see you in six months for the uh, for the book report. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Take care. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye.